following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information about Trinity Grace Church, go to www.trinitygracesa.org. Good morning once again. Welcome to Trinity Grace. So glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest this morning. I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. My name is Michael. And as many of you know, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark over the past few weeks here at Trinity Grace, and it's a remarkably early eyewitness account of who Jesus is and what he came to do in this world. And one of the things that we see Jesus doing in this gospel is establishing a new kingdom. He comes to establish a new kingdom. It's what he calls the kingdom of God. And by establishing this kingdom, Jesus invites us into a new way of living in this world. We mentioned a few weeks ago that it's a way of living that has to be learned. It's not something that we automatically grasp. It's something that we learn throughout our life of following Jesus. Because living according to God's kingdom takes a lifetime to learn because the culture of God's kingdom is very different from the culture in which we find ourselves living in today. We see from the gospel of Mark that living in God's kingdom means learning new ways of life. Things like putting others ahead of yourself. Things like offering forgiveness to those who offend you. Things like seeking justice for the oppressed. In God's kingdom, unlike our kingdom many times, characteristics like humility and love and mercy are highly valued and exalted. Jesus came to establish this kingdom, and he wants you and I to become citizens of this kingdom. And this idea of building a new kingdom stands out in the gospel of Mark. And we see this morning that an aspect of this new kingdom is life, life. Jesus values life. And when we say life this morning, we don't just mean having a pulse and breathing oxygen, okay? We mean living with wholeness, living vibrantly, living in freedom before God and before other people. We mean the fullness of life. It's what Jesus meant when he said in John 10.10, he says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We see Jesus bringing fullness of life in our passage this morning. You follow along as I read from Mark chapter five. Initially, we were gonna look at the whole passage, but last minute I decided it was too much and I don't wanna keep you here for 45 minutes. And so we're just gonna look at Jairus this morning. Mark chapter five, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And then skipping down to verse 35, while he was still on his way, There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John and the brother of James. James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. 
And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. What in the world? Give her something to eat. Last phrase is so interesting. Why would Mark ruin a moment like this with an irrelevant detail like that? Well, it's what's known as an eyewitness touch. Mark in this passage wrote it because it's how it happened. It's a firsthand account and God gives us his word because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder if you can remember the last time you were searching for a place to live. Maybe you were buying a home in San Antonio for the first time or changing homes. Maybe you were looking for a place to rent in the area. And if you happen to have moved sometime in the past decade, the past 10 years, it's likely that you use the housing website Zillow in a part of the moving process. Zillow, as most of you will know, is a website that lists all the houses that are for sale or rent in a given area. And you can get on the website and waste a lot of time on the website, even if you're not looking for houses. And look at giant maps of the city and even narrow your search to a specific neighborhood. And you can see what options are out there when it comes to housing. And it's really changed the way that people market their homes and buy homes. If you've ever spent time on Zillow before just poking around to see what's out there, you may have noticed that there are three main categories it comes to when looking at homes on that website. You've got homes that are listed for sale. You've got homes that are listed for rent. And then you've got some homes that are listed under the category, make me move, make me move. Make me move is where you don't technically place your home on the market, but you throw a price out there on the website and let folks know that if they're willing to pay you that number, you're willing to pack your stuff up and find a new home. They can buy your house for the right price. And it's an interesting category on the Zillow website. It's a category that reminds us that even if something isn't technically for sale, you know that if you throw out the right number and you keep going higher and higher, at some point, everything's for sale. Think about it. You'd be willing to sell most of what you physically own for the right price. Even if you didn't have a for sale sign on it, there's a dollar figure where you'd consider letting that item go, your house or your car, a piece of jewelry, a favorite clothing item, furniture in your house even. Basically, everything you physically own is for sale if someone is willing to pay the right price for it. In an affluent, resource-rich culture and context like ours, this makes sense makes sense to us. In fact, if you step back and think about your life, there's not much in life that you want that you don't have. We live in a resource-rich context where if you want something, you tend to figure out how to get it. Sure, I realize there are limits to our resources. There are some homes and some cars and some vacations that you'll never be able to afford. 
But generally speaking, if you want a particular experience or a particular item, it's within the realm of possibility that you could purchase it with enough hard work or enough consistent saving or enough giving up other items in order to get what you want. We live in a culture and a context where everything is for sale. And we generally have the resources to purchase most of what we want and especially all of what we need. But what we see in our passage this morning is that not everything is for sale. Not everything is for sale. There are some things in life that no matter how many resources you have at your disposal, they can't be bought. And if you stop and think about these invaluable things in our lives, the things that can't be obtained with money or influence or connections, you begin to realize that they're really the things that are most important in our lives. Our resources are no good for purchasing many of the most important things that we experience. Things like connected relationships with our spouse or our kids. Things like vocational satisfaction and purpose in life. You cannot purchase that. Things like health. You cannot purchase perfect health. It it catches up to all of us, this body of ours that's affected by sin in the fall. Things like decisions that your children make as they get older. You cannot purchase what you wish that they would do. These are things that are really valuable. But they can't be purchased with our resources. They can't be fixed with our connections and our influence. So what do you do when you can't fix things with your resources? What do you do when you can't purchase what you most desperately need? What do you do when your power and your influence and your connections, the things that you've relied on all of your life are useless to obtain your deepest desires? Well, when we come to realize that there are many things in our lives that our resources can't fix, we begin to lose the illusion of control that we normally operate with. We lose control. When our resources are gone, when they're not enough, control is all of a sudden taken away from us. It's over. And what do you do then? Well, some of us experience this loss of control and we try harder. We work more hours. We search more options out. We call in our favors and all of our connections. We refuse to give up and we basically work like crazy. Others of us experience this loss of control and it leads to anger and bitterness and cynicism in our hearts. We begin to slowly believe that life is stacked against us and maybe just maybe even God is out to get us. Where does a loss of control lead you? Well, what we see from our passage this morning is that when our resources are gone, when our sense of control has been taken away, It's the perfect soil for faith to grow. In other words, our resources and our sense of control oftentimes effectively keep you and me from Jesus. They're the things that keep us from coming to him with desperation. But what we see in our passage and really throughout the gospels is that Jesus is the one who has unlimited resources and he wants to share them with us. He wants to give them to us. Jesus is the one who is ultimately in control and he uses that control for our good ultimately. And so we're invited to go with Jesus with our lack of resources and our loss of control. 
And as we consider that this morning, I want to look at this passage under three quick headings. The first thing that we see is a desperate person. The second thing that we see is a hopeless situation. And the third thing we see is new life. So a desperate person, a hopeless situation, and new life. First, we see a desperate person. This passage picks up with Jesus returning to Galilee by boat. He's going back home and he gets off the boat and people are waiting for him, a large crowd. And as he gets off the boat, he also meets a man named Jairus. And we see from our passage that Jairus is one of the rulers of the synagogue. A ruler of the synagogue in that day and age would have been in charge of managing the local synagogue there in Galilee. It wasn't a huge town. Think of a few hundred people. That's what you should have in mind here. This person likely paid for the upkeep of the building, the synagogue, and he likely even helped craft services every Sabbath day for the people that visited the synagogue. And there are some things that we can know about Jairus because of his position. He was wealthy. He was socially prominent. He was known. He was morally respectable. He was devoted to God. He was someone who was used to having things together. He was a man used to what we would call access. He had access, his power and his resources and his influence opened doors for him. In that regard, he'd probably fit in pretty well here with us in America, in San Antonio. But we see from the story that things had gotten away from him. He was no longer in control. He comes to Jesus and what we see is he falls at his feet, which he likely had not done with any other person in his entire life. And in verse 23, we see that Jairus implored Jesus earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. The phrase implored Jesus earnestly basically means that Jairus had become a beggar. He is begging Jesus for help here in this passage. Jairus is desperate because his little girl is at the point of death. It's gotten so bad that he sees no alternative other than casting himself at the feet of Jesus. Jairus' life is falling apart and he's basically nowhere else to turn. He couldn't buy himself out of this problem. He couldn't use his influence or his prominence to fix this one. So he makes his way to Jesus and he begs for help. The language Jairus uses is communicating that if Jesus doesn't come and help his daughter, his daughter is as good as dead. This is his last resource, his last option. There's a strong element of faith in this request by Jairus. He at least has a glimmer of hope that Jesus might be able to help him. And so he goes to Jesus in his desperation, a socially prominent man with a reputation to protect, and he falls at the feet of Jesus and begs for his help. A while back, Rachel and I were driving to have dinner at Thai D, which is an amazing Thai restaurant on Blanco Road. Um, if you haven't been, you should try it. And we were driving to dinner and we were at a stoplight. And I've mentioned this in the past here at Trinity Grace. We saw a homeless man who was at the intersection across from us. And he was walking in between cars at the red light and he made eye contact with each driver. And he made a sign of the cross for every car that he passed. And Rachel and I normally don't comment or even really pay much attention to things like this because it's such a normal sight in San Antonio. But for some reason, this evening, Rachel commented and asked, I wonder how it feels to be so desperate that you have to beg like that. 
And I know that question could be answered in lots of different ways. Maybe he didn't really want help. Maybe he knew where he could get food if he needed it. Maybe he just wanted to buy alcohol, right? The things that run through our minds when we see somebody homeless and begging on the side of the street. And we can't really relate to beggars that we see on the side of the street physically because you and I, we've got plenty of food. We've got all that we need. We've got resources and connections to lean on. But is it possible that what we often see at red lights in San Antonio is a physical picture of what you and I look like spiritually? a physical picture of what you and I reality is like in a spiritual sense. How would understanding our need in this way change the way that we approach Jesus? A lot of times the thing that keeps us from actually experiencing our spiritual neediness is that you and I look so good on the outside. We've got so many things to lean on. We've got so many physical resources Just like Jairus, we're socially respectable. We have resources. We've got our lives together. But where will you go when things get desperate in your life? When things get away from you, so to speak. When it seems like your marriage is falling apart or when you get a call that one of your close friends has cancer or when you say something to a friend that you wish you had never said and could take back, but you can't. Or when you find out what you most wanted in life isn't gonna work out. When you're desperate, where do you turn? If you don't go to Jesus with your desperation, here's the thing, you will go somewhere. You will go somewhere with your desperation. And more often than not, we tend to move towards destructive behaviors with our desperation. Life is out of control and we, can fix, we can't fix it. It's completely out of our control. Things have gotten away from us. And when we realize we can't fix it, we're desperate. We don't go to Jesus. But what we do is we drink more or we look at more pornography or we buy more stuff or we gossip about a friend or we harm ourselves or we work ourselves to exhaustion. I wonder if you've ever considered that these behaviors that we oftentimes engage in are our souls screaming out in desperation. We go to these things because we're desperate for life. And these things give us small shots of the life that we're looking for. They actually satisfy for a little while, but they don't last. And these things we all experience in our desperation in our lives And in the midst of these things, the question becomes, where are we going to go when we're desperate? Only Jesus is powerful enough to actually help us. But before things get better in this passage, we see things get worse. As Jesus and Jairus are on their way to his house, a group of messengers meet them and bring back heartbreaking news in verse 35. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And at hearing this news, imagine how Jairus felt. I mean, the news must have hit him like a ton of bricks. His daughter was gone. Desperation turns to abject hopelessness. It's over. And we see that Jesus actually hears the news, but it's almost like he ignores it. He says in verse 36, he looks at Jairus and says, do not fear, only believe. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm coming anyway. I'm coming anyway. But can you imagine what Jairus must have been feeling even after getting this assurance from Jesus? The grieving process had likely already begun for him. 
He likely would have thought, that's nice of you to come, Jesus, but she's gone. There's nothing you can do. She's dead. Jairus goes along with Jesus, though, and you have to think it must have been hard. He must have been hopeless at this point. There's nothing more that can be done. And as they approach Jairus' house, the passage tells us there's lots of commotion around the girl's room. Verse 38 says that there's weeping and loud wailing. These were likely professional mourners. They were hired by families to lead the mourning rituals in the ancient Near East. In fact, even the poorest families hired these professional mourners when someone had died in their life, in their family. And these groups consisted of at least a flute player and a wailing woman. And this allowed the family to really mourn without embarrassment. Basically a smokescreen so they could wail as loud as they wanted. And as Jesus enters this room, he speaks to these mourners in verse 39. He says this, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And people responded as you would expect them to respond. They laughed. They laughed because they knew a dead child when they saw one. In their mind, it's over. Jesus is talking nonsense. If ever there was a hopeless situation, this is it. Death had already occurred. She was not breathing. Her pulse was gone. And in this passage, when Jesus says that she's just sleeping, it's important to note that he really means that death is no more powerful than sleep when he's involved. In other words, there are no hopeless situations. Jesus is facing down death here, the enemy of the human race. And if he can do that, then there's nothing that's too far gone in our lives. I wonder this morning where you're experiencing death in your life. Where have you given up hope? There are places in each of our lives, I want you to hear me say this, where if we were told that things could be resurrected, we would just laugh. We would laugh like these mourners. For some of you, it would be the idea of a better relationship with your spouse. Somebody tells you that that's a possibility. No way. That's already too far gone. For some of you, it would be the idea of connecting with your children in deep ways. For some of you, it would be the idea of being free from the slavery of sexual addiction. And you think to yourself, I can't stop doing what I don't want to do. For some of you, it's the idea of having a sense of joy in your work. And we look at those areas of our lives and we think, why bother? It's over. These aspects of my life have felt like death for a long time. Where have you given up hope? Wherever that place is, you need to hear Jesus looking at you this morning and saying, like he says to Jairus in verse 36, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. What would you do if Jesus came into your life and offered to bring life to those areas of death? In our cynicism and fear, I think many of us, like we mentioned last week, we'd laugh just like the mourners in Mark chapter 5 because we know what death looks like when we see it. We've looked at some areas of our lives and labeled them as too far gone. We'd labeled them as irredeemable. But we see from this passage, and like I said last week, that we don't get to decide whether something is or isn't irredeemable in our life. That's Jesus' prerogative. And with him, there's always hope. We see this hope in action at the end of our passage. Jesus puts everyone outside the room, except for a small group of people, his inner circle, 
Peter, James, and John, we see them getting access to certain events in Jesus's life that nobody else gets access to. He takes in the parents as well. And he approaches this young girl. And it says he takes her by the hand and says something that's preserved for us in the Aramaic, which would have been the spoken language of the day. In verse 31, we see Jesus say, Talitha kum. Talitha literally means little girl. It's a pet name, a pet name, a term of endearment. In that day and age, a mother would use it. It would be like calling someone honey, honey, dear. Kum means arise. It would be what parents would say to wake somebody up from sleep most days, their child. And Peter, as he tells this story to Mark, and as Mark records it for us, he leaves the words in the original Aramaic untranslated because these words had left such a deep impression upon Peter and Mark. So Jesus enters this room, a room characterized by death and hopelessness. He approaches this little girl, takes her by the hand, and basically says, Honey, it's time to get up. And she does. And the passage says that they were immediately overcome with amazement. These people knew what Jesus had just done. They're witnessing the life-giving power of Jesus breaking into their ordinary day, into their ordinary life. And this passage really shows us that there is no enemy Jesus can't handle. There is no area of your life that is too far gone, no area too hopeless. I mean, this is death, the greatest enemy of mankind. And if Jesus can handle this, he can handle the smaller deaths in our lives. He can bring resurrection to our relationships, to our emotions, to our struggles. We can experience this life ultimately because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, where he experienced our great enemy death for us. Every human on earth is going to experience death in this life, and normally we experience it with great resistance. The poet Dylan Thomas captured this reality in one of his famous poems where he says, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. We resist death with all of our might. It's scary. We don't know what's on the other side, but Jesus came to experience it voluntarily. He goes silently so that he might reach down into death and bring us back up. Jesus is so committed to bringing us life that he gives his up freely so that we might have it truly. Jesus died so that you and I might have life. And we can experience that life even now in true, real ways. Even now, Jesus is making the sadness in our lives come untrue. Some of you will know that our children behind me are moving through the Jesus Storybook Bible at TGC Kids. It's something that we've read our kids growing up, likely something that you've read to your kids as well. And I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of that Storybook Bible, recounts this story from Mark chapter 5. She paints the picture this way. Jesus walked into the little girl's bedroom and there lying in the corner in the shadows was the still little figure. Jesus sat on the bed and took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. And Jesus helped and healed many people like this. 
He made blind people see. He made deaf people hear. He made lame people walk. Jesus was making the sad things come untrue. He was mending God's broken world. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you have come into our world, come into our life in order to mend things, in order to bring life where there was death, in order to offer us full and free forgiveness because of your life, death, and your resurrection. Because of your resurrection, death does not have the last word. And we can experience life truly even now as we embrace you through faith. We pray that you would give us that life this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.